give your mother's name again? Sarah Lexi Jane Goins. Mm -hmm. She was named after both her grandmothers. Sarah was uh, from her daddy's side. Lexi Jane was her mother's mother. She was killed in Rosewood. She was shot in the back. And as she was trying to run into the house, they set the house on fire. Mm-hmm. So, was she the lady that was under the house? Yes. And uh, she came out from under the house, and mm-hmm. the house was on fire. And then they and shot they, in the back. They killed her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember Lexi Gordon. Mm-hmm. I think it was her, the last name that they had for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was your grandmother. That was my great grandmother. Your great grandmother. Her, her daughter was Annabelle Gordon, who married John Goins. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then my mother came from those two. <laughs> I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. heard from Angela Goines. She's a descendant of the Goines family, one of the two most powerful families in Rosewood before the 1923 Rosewood Massacre, the other being the Carrier family. Angela's mother was a survivor of the massacre. Her name is Sarah Lexi Jane Goines. She was three years old when she escaped the massacre with her own mother, Angela's great-grandmother, who Lexi Jane was in part named after. You'll hear from Angela a little more later. The interview with Angela was conducted by Sherry Sherrod Dupree. Mrs. Dupree has worked with the Rosewood Heritage Foundation for many years. She's an author, historian, archivist, as well as a former instructor and librarian at the University of Florida and Santa Fe College. This interview with Angela Goines is one of a number of interviews pertaining to Rosewood Massacre survivors and their descendants that Mrs. Dupree has done with the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida, or SPOHP. SPOHP offers digital humanities production and experiential learning classroom and fieldwork opportunities year-round. The recorded interview of Angela Goines is courtesy of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. However, in order to understand how an incident such as the Rosewood Massacre could occur, it is important to understand the history of Africans and African Americans in Florida, and that's going to require a bit of course correction when it comes to this history. The year 1619 has become a focal point of many scholars and teachers who are authorities on Black history, particularly slavery in English North America. Michael Guasco is the chair and professor of history in the history department at Davidson College, located in Davidson, North Carolina. He recently penned an editorial article in the Smithsonian Magazine titled, quote, The misguided focus on 1619 as the beginning of slavery in the U.S. damages our understanding of American history. End quote. In that editorial, he challenges what he calls an overemphasis on the year 1619, which is when the first Africans were brought to Jamestown, Virginia. Guasco makes the claim that this overemphasis on 1619 distorts history and essentially lends weight to the idea that 1619 is the first year Africans arrived in English North America, which is not true. Guasco writes, quote, 1619 was not the first time Africans could be found in an English Atlantic colony, and it certainly wasn't the first time people of African descent made their mark and imposed their will on the land that would someday be a part of the United States. As early as May 1616, Blacks from the West Indies were already working in Bermuda, providing expert knowledge about the cultivation of tobacco. There is also suggestive evidence that scores of Africans plundered from the Spanish were aboard a fleet under the command of Sir Francis Drake when he arrived at Roanoke Island in 1586. In 1526, enslaved Africans were part of a Spanish expedition to establish an outpost on the North American coast in present-day South Carolina. Those Africans launched a rebellion in November of that year and effectively destroyed the Spanish settlers' ability to sustain the settlement, which they abandoned a year later. 
nearly 100 years before Jamestown, African actors enabled American colonies to survive, and they were equally able to destroy European colonial ventures. End quote. In another article published in staugustine.com, professor in the historic St. Augustine Research Institute at Flagler College, Dr. Susan Parker, explains further. She writes, quote, the first enslaved Africans brought to today's United States did not arrive with Pedro Menendez at St. Augustine in 1565. They came ashore almost 40 years earlier as part of the short-lived Spanish settlement headed by Lucas Vasquez de Alion, located probably on Sapelo Island, Georgia, near Darien. The settlement known as San Miguel de Guadalupe lasted for about six weeks from late September 1526 to the middle of November. Historian Paul Hoffman writes that the slaves at San Miguel rebelled and set fire to some homes of the Spaniards. The settlement was abandoned, end quote. It should be noted that San Miguel is considered to be the first known European settlement in the continental United States. According to the South Carolina Encyclopedia, quote, scholars place San Miguel at various sites along the coast of present South Carolina and Georgia, but only an archaeological discovery will resolve this debate, end quote. Recently, Parker, whom you'll hear from shortly, was awarded the annual William L. Proctor Award by the Historic St. Augustine Research Institute for her work, quote, Oldest City, The History of St. Augustine, end quote. The book is described as a compilation of the work of 11 authors, also known for their research on various aspects of St. Augustine history. St. Augustine lays claim to being the oldest city in the United States and is notorious for its Spanish colonial architecture and Atlantic Ocean beaches. In the same article, Parker goes on to write, quote, Spain's King Philip II and Pedro Menendez signed a contract in March 1565 that set forth the responsibilities for the settlement of La Florida, a territory that Spain claimed at the time reached from the Florida Keys to Newfoundland. One of the clauses of this contract required that Menendez, quote, attempt to place within three years 500 slaves for his service and for that of the people in order that the towns might be built with more facility and the land might be cultivated. They shall plant sugarcane for the sugar works which shall be made, end quote. Six months after signing the contract, Menendez founded our city on September 8, 1565, Parker writes, quote, as with so many settlement enterprises and endeavors, reality fell far short of plans. Still, the point here is that there were black slaves in St. Augustine from the time of its settlement in 1565, but not the 500 required by the contract. End quote. It is also worth noting that prior to the founding of St. Augustine, all previous attempts to settle Florida had ended disastrously. From 1513 to 1559, the Spanish sent several major expeditions to Florida, but each one ended in complete failure due to reasons such as attacks from Native Americans, disease, intolerable climate, and as previously mentioned, a slave rebellion. Now, in the grand scheme of things, whether slaves arrived to present-day America in the 16th century or the 17th century, slavery is still slavery, and it will forever remain one of the most enduring stains on our nation's history. However, by not widely acknowledging the actual year that Africans could be found in what we know today as the United States, we are whitewashing history and disgracing the memory of those Africans who arrived on these shores against their will long before 1619. Guasco summarizes the point perfectly when he writes, quote, Privileging that date and the Chesapeake region effectively erases the memory of many more African peoples than it memorializes. The from this point forward and in this place narrative arc silences the memory of the more than 500,000 African men, women, and children who had already crossed the Atlantic against their will, aided and abetted Europeans in their endeavors, provided expertise and guidance in a range of enterprises, suffered, died, and most importantly, endured, end quote. He goes on to write, quote, Telling the story of 1619 as an English story also ignores the entirely transnational nature of the early modern Atlantic world and the way competing European powers collectively facilitated racial slavery, even as they disagreed about and fought over almost everything else. From the early 1500s forward, the Portuguese, Spanish, English, French, Dutch, and others fought to control the resources of the emerging transatlantic world and worked together to facilitate the dislocation of the indigenous peoples of Africa 
Africa and the Americas. As historian John Thornton has shown us, the African men and women who appeared almost as if by chance in Virginia in 1619 were there because of a chain of events involving Portugal, Spain, the Netherlands, and England. Virginia was part of the story, but it was a blip on the radar screen. End quote. For the purposes of this podcast, there's another reason why it's important to acknowledge the existence of Africans, particularly African slaves, prior to 1619. While some consider St. Augustine to be the birthplace of African-American history, regardless of the place, we must acknowledge the birth of Black resistance to slavery. You'll recall Guasco's explanation of the first Africans in present-day United States. Quote, in 1526, enslaved Africans were part of a Spanish expedition to establish an outpost on the North American coast in present-day South Carolina. Those Africans launched a rebellion in November of that year and effectively destroyed the Spanish settlers' ability to sustain the settlement, which they abandoned a year later, end quote. And as Dr. Parker explained, San Miguel is the site of the first recorded slave rebellion in U.S. history, and as such, it marks the beginning of the Black struggle for freedom and equality in America. This legacy of resistance to bondage and the oppression that has smothered Blacks in America for centuries would become an important theme in the African-American struggle for freedom and civil liberties time and again. This includes slaves in St. Augustine, Florida, who wanted their freedom. According to Parker, Florida's governor reported in 1603 that up to eight slaves had fled south to the Indians in the area of Cape Canaveral. This was 16 years before the English landed at Jamestown, predating the introduction of slaves into English Virginia in 1619, which again, many books cite as the beginning date of African slavery in the United States. In order to tell the complete story of Blacks in America, including the story of the Rosewood Massacre, we must acknowledge this history, especially this legacy of resistance to bondage among Blacks, which will shape not only Black history in America, but the overall struggle for freedom and civil rights for all Americans. Now, Dr. Parker is not a fan of trying to explain a large amount of history in a short amount of time because she believes you end up leaving out so many fascinating, important pieces of information. And she's correct. However, we only have a limited amount of time to get through the history of Rosewood, which in order to fully understand, one must consider the full history of Florida and how certain historical events set the stage for a tragedy such as Rosewood to occur. That said, Dr. Parker is about to break down much of the early part of Florida's history prior to Rosewood. And I have to say, she does a really good job. Susan Parker, a Spanish colonial historian and previously worked as a historian for the state of Florida and also taught at several Florida universities. So this season will focus on Rosewood, but Rosewood will be used to represent sort of the experiences that African-Americans experienced in Florida during this post-Reconstruction era and sort of the backlash to what was born out of Reconstruction, which was the emergence of this sort of Black middle class, so to speak, in American society, in which Black people were able to access the political system and, and sort of have a sense of economic independence on a larger scale than they'd ever had before. And also the resistance that African-Americans employed to sort of combat the oppression that they experienced during this era in Florida at this time. And so in doing so, I wanted to obviously set the stage for how African-Americans even came to arrive in Florida. And the idea that most of us had been taught for many years and that still seems to be the prevailing idea in a lot of academic arenas is that 1619 was the beginning of slavery in America as we know it. Yourself and, and several other scholars have taken issue with that and rightfully pointed out that the first slaves arrived in Florida far before, almost a century before 1619. So can you kind of set the record straight on that a little bit? 
Certainly. And we have the documentation for it. Perhaps one of the reasons it's been overlooked is because most of that documentation is in Spanish, not in English. So early on, it was not incorporated into the standard historical narrative of the United States. But as far as we know, the first slaves, the Africans that came to settle, came in 1526 to a small settlement called San Miguel de Guadalupe, which was on one of the uh, coastal islands of Georgia. And the uh, settlement lasted probably six or seven weeks, mostly because people got sick. The Africans that were there took the opportunity before then. We don't, weren't really sure as to the timing. But anyway, they resisted. They supposedly set the church on fire there. And as far as we know, they ran away probably to incorporate into the Native American groups that were nearby. So that was the first, but the settlement was not successful. In 1565, almost 40 years later, St. Augustine was established and is still here today. And there were Africans, both slave and free, as part of that settlement and have been in St. Augustine ever since then. And so that that is more than, let me do the math real fast here, more than 40 odd years before 1619. I think it's more than just saying it was earlier or first. It's to show that the Africans were part of the very early settlements and that they experienced in their own way the same things that all the early settlers did, the starvation, uncertainty, the displeasure usually of the Native Americans with someone trying to come into their territory. In other words, they had to figure out how to survive along with the leaders of the settlements. And so they were in St. Augustine from that time period on and throughout other parts of Florida. The story of Africans in early Florida also doesn't quite match probably what most people think of in light of U.S. history. And that is because they were not agricultural workers. There were not farms and plantations. St. Augustine became a military outpost, although that is not what the Spanish had intended for it. They intended for it to be settled and to make them wealthy, just like everything else. That didn't work out. So the Africans that were here and that continued to be sent here became did, did support work for the military. They built defense works in the, in the small fields, you might say, just food for the locals. Worked as sawyers, in other words, people sawing trees. Certainly rowers, oarsmen. So they were not agricultural workers. You didn't have this large group of Africans working in isolation, mostly in isolation from the farmer plantation owners. And it's a little bit of a different story, or it's a big bit of a different story. <laughs> sure, sure. And so St. Augustine is, is a pretty important part of this history, and it is considered to be the first European settlement in what we now know to be the United States, correct? Right. That's correct. Yes, it is. Okay. So why is it important to note the exact recorded year that Africans arrived to what we now know as the United States and to sort of give them their proper place in history? Well, I think it gives them their proper place as part of the settlers. Very often, I don't think they're thought of as as settlers, but they were here at the beginning as I said, trying to survive with everybody in a new in a new environment and and a new a new situation. I think also if they are left out, we we miss the fact that their interaction with the Native Americans early on would affect later responses, certainly by the Native Americans, to other Europeans and also the information that the Europeans known. One of the things that's interesting, and we're always interested in people that attempt to find freedom is that some of the earliest slave escapes took place from St. Augustine, not to St. Augustine, but from St. Augustine. One that is pretty well documented under the circumstances is the governor in 1603 writes that seven African slaves have escaped from St. Augustine and have headed south to the area of Kennedy Space Center, Cape Canaveral, down to the Native Americans down there. He wants to retrieve them because obviously they want the work. Also concerned that they will give information to any English or Spanish ships that might decide to come ashore there about what St. Augustine is like. How strongly is it defended? How many people are there? So he's worried about what today we would call the intelligence that they may be able to supply to rival European nations. He wants to get the Africans back and 
Five of them are returned, but two of them stay because they have married into the Ais Indians there. So what Native Americans are there? Africans that ran from St. Augustine ran to a group called the Ais, which is down in the area of, as I said, Cape Kennedy Space Center. In this area in St. Augustine, there were the Tamuqua and the Wali. They're all fairly small groups. And they were the ones that were here when the Spanish arrived. And therefore, those Native Americans interacted constantly with Europeans longer than other Native Americans did because they were here next to the Spanish. Understood. And so we see the theme of uh, even early and before 1619, this theme of Black resistance to slavery, to bondage and sort of their fight and quest for freedom. And I want to know, in your opinion, how this legacy, whether it be in San Miguel or slaves running from St. Augustine, how it really factors into this longer theme we'll see of Black resistance to oppression and bondage and similar circumstances throughout Florida's history until the present day, really? Well, how much did this knowledge of the early resistance and early escapes, uh, was it told by word of mouth? How much were they, how much were they aware? And the other thing is, is that certainly in the more, you might say, standard older style U.S. histories, it was given no attention. Even today, it's kind of a sidebar in the textbooks or or texts that are used. So I'm sure there were some stories told, but I don't know which ones were known because, of course, the Africans aren't recording that. They aren't being recorded and they aren't recording that probably because, like most of the people here, they did not know how to write. Very few people in the early days in the colonies knew how to write. And in 1693, the Spanish crown began offering asylum to runaway slaves who converted to Catholicism and would serve in the military for four years in order to destabilize the economy of the British colonies to the north. But slavery actually existed prior to this and really existed for much of the period before 1821, when it would become a legal slave state, so to speak, under the Adams-Onis Treaty. But the idea that the Spanish would offer freedom to slaves who would, you know, fight for them gives you kind of an idea of the friction between the Spanish and the British. So can you kind of explain the dynamics between the different colonizers of Florida prior to it finally becoming an American colony? Well, I think, of course, the Spanish were happy to lure the workers away from Carolina both for their ability to do work, but also, as I mentioned, by the earlier runaways, for the inte- for what they knew about where they were leaving. That's one of the reasons that the Spanish usually didn't want to send them back. Once they had seen St. Augustine, it's like, if you're returned, you'll know what we have here. How many cannon do we have? How many people do we have? How many ships do we have? And we see those questions asked repeatedly throughout the Spanish documents. The other thing is, is that the Spanish had, in various places, the percentage is not the same, But they were comfortable with free Blacks. Generally, it appears that the English colonies were not nearly so comfortable with having free Blacks among the population. The Spanish had lots of, I mean, they were spread throughout, but there were still also an awful lot of people that were enslaved. They offered freedom, which didn't always happen, but they offered freedom to the people that would run away from British Carolina to Spanish Florida. But there was no similar offer for the Spanish slaves that were already living here. So that opportunity was not open to them. And so in Spanish Florida, most of the Blacks that were in Spanish Florida were enslaved. There were enslaved Blacks from the founding of St. Augustine and even the the earlier attempts in 1565 until the Emancipation Proclamation, no matter what country, whether it was Spain, briefly Great Britain, and then later on the United States. So in Florida for that whole three centuries. Can you just explain the significance of Fort Mose and having it located close to St. Augustine and having it be sort of the first line of defense for St. Augustine when it is attacked by the enemy and 
as a place where Black people were allowed to carry guns, to fight, to be engaging in combat long before the Revolutionary War. And I mention this because the idea of doing such a thing is usually not acceptable until for example, the Revolutionary War, Americans needed the slaves to do so. And then in the Civil War, until the Union needed the slaves to do so. And even when World War I came around, it was considered, yes, you'll fight for us, but they certainly weren't given the same sort of respect as other soldiers were. But it, it seems like the dynamics are a little different when it comes to Spanish rule and allowing Blacks to serve in the military. Is that correct? That's Mark? correct. And some of that goes back to my earlier comment is that the Spanish were comfortable with free Blacks as part of their society. You have, you, I think that's essential before anything else before, before anything else happens. If you're in a society where they're not comfortable with free Blacks, then they're not going to be permitted to do a lot of those things. So the Spanish did rely on the people that ran from South Carolina to St. Augustine and were freed and were able to establish the village of Gracia de Mose, Fort Mose, about two miles north of the city. It was a very tactical idea by the governor of Florida at the time because he knew that they would fight very hard, but he also knew they would fight extra hard because they would be recaptured by the British who were coming to attack. So they had they had a lot of motive to fight hard. The Spanish had had, in Florida, had had some militia prior to Fort Mose. So they were using black militia here before that. And they would continue, they would continue to do so. So the idea of arming them was was not a problem. And of course, I think one of the things that Mose does certainly for the Carolinians, it becomes huge in their imagination. It is an example that their afraid will inspire massive runaway, massive resistance. And so, as we all know, something that may take place for a fairly short period of time can become a very big example and a very big inspiration to a group. And so that's one of the, that's one of the things that I think that Mose certainly did at the time that it was in existence and does today. It offers people of whatever color the idea that there were possibilities for other roles for Africans that they filled very well at the time and people trusted them to do so at a time that we don't usually expect that. So in 1821, the Adams-Onis Treaty was signed, which made Florida a U.S. territory and officially a slave state as a U.S. territory, even though we already established that slavery existed prior to that in Florida under Spanish rule. My question for you is, how did this sort of transform or change the landscape of Florida? How did slavery really start to have a larger role in Florida? And how are slaves treated? And and sort of what were the drivers of Florida's economy at the time? Well, after, after Florida became part of the U.S., became a U.S. territory, of course, it was under the same larger rules as Georgia and Alabama and the other states and the other territories and or states that were close by. After it came part of the U.S. and even just before, there was rapid in-migration of people that wanted from Georgia and from other states that wanted to take advantage of the land that was available in Florida. They particularly wanted to plant cotton and along the coastal areas, which are a little warmer, they planted a different type of cotton called Sea Island cotton, which was very, very luxurious type of cotton that doesn't grow in many places. And so you have this rush of settle they establish plantations and farms. And of course, they need laborers and they rely upon African-Americans to become the laborers. And so at that point, we do start to see a much larger proportion of Africans in Florida than there had been before, because we now have this agricultural base that requires workers. And as we all know, in the South, most of the workers on the cotton and other plantations or farms, some as large as what we would call plantations, were African. And because of that, and because of the concern about resistance and fears, which were not very well founded at all, you find more and more restrictive laws being passed in order to keep the growing number of Blacks under control and in place. We focus on Florida, but it's happening, it's happening all over. 
And we see that, for example, even people that were not slaves, the free blacks in Florida and other places, no longer can be a legal person. They can no longer own property in their own name. They can no longer go to court in their own name. They have to have a white, of course, male, a white guardian appointed for them. Whereas previously they could sell, buy and sell, they could sue and, and other sorts of legalities. And so the, until finally, a lot of the free blacks just really want to leave. There's not a lot of good options because they've been so foreclosed from doing what they did in the past. Can I ask around what year you're specifically referring to? Well, it's we really start to see it about 10 years later after Florida becomes part of the U.S. By the 1830s, you really start. It's interesting because you start to also see at the same time the clamping down on the rights of women to uh, represent themselves legally as well. It's, it's almost contemporaneous. So we see it's, it's just all sorts of restrictions, curfews by city councils, just all sorts of things to keep all sorts of ordinances and other sorts of practices to make sure that the Africans do not are not able to get out of control and overwhelm the whites, which is which is the fear. And do you think some of that comes from incidents that had happened in the years prior? It, it may have come from that. It may have come from, of course, the um, Negro Fort, which was over in over west of Tallahassee on the Florida border. And probably also just that those are those are stories that just become bigger and bigger and bigger in the imagination. It, they, so they have these instances of black resistance that at that point you see it happening everywhere or they think they see it happening everywhere. And why wouldn't people want to be free? <laughs> Correct. Right. Exactly. Before we expand upon that idea of black resistance a little more, just to be clear, so the drivers of the economy really were cotton at that time. Did tobacco come into play or was that too early? There may have been some tobacco over west of Tallahassee, but it was mostly cotton and, and also timbering. But of course, that's clear that you don't use the same land over and over. Mostly cotton. The cotton market was hot. Sure. And how did the population size change after Florida officially became a U.S. territory? Well, it, it grew because there was so much migration in from the states to the north. So lands that had not been settled in the sense of land cleared and farms being established were, were put into place. And so the population and, and the U.S. government made it easy for people to get they wanted people to settle in Florida, which Seminoles got pushed further south because the Seminoles were occupying land that was going to be good cotton land. And so this, the Indian and the arrival of the cotton enterprises are very much interrelated. And I talked about the runaways in 1603. There had been a very long-term relationship between freedom-seeking Blacks and the Native Americans, whatever the group was, and not just in Florida. <laughs> and so you mentioned the Seminoles came in later on. So what year do the Seminoles and Black people in Florida begin to form these alliances? The Seminoles come in just a little bit before the American Revolution. They're a group that's broken off from the Creeks, and they move south into Florida, into the center part of the state where there was hardly any white settlement. And it was one of the places that Blacks seeking freedom could go was to the Seminoles. And there's a lot of debate over the relationship between the Blacks that the Seminoles, some actually they re-enslaved them as, as to exactly what that meant. But there are records in the local courthouse of Seminole Indians selling Black slaves. So they did re-enslave some of them or they enslaved some of them. What that really meant on a day-to-day -day basis is not well-documented. I'm sure there's stories, but it's not well-documented. But it was certainly a place for them to escape. And a lot of them from this area tried to escape to the Bahamas as well. The Seminoles were one of the five civilized tribes. So I'm assuming that's those are the ones you were talking about. Not all Seminoles owned slaves, but they were one of the tribes right. that did practice slavery. Right. Yeah. And so since they were broken off from the Muscogee Creek Native Americans, does that mean they came from? They're kind of an amalgamation of groups, but largely they're thought to have come from somewhere in West Georgia and moved down. There was there was disagreement among those lower creeks 
and the Seminoles, the group that becomes the Seminoles, move into Florida. There are others over in the area of what's today Tallahassee, about 200 miles west of here. And they still continue to call themselves Seminoles, but they have their own, because there's Seminole Nation, there's a group called the Porch Creek Indians, there's the Porch Creek Seminoles, the Miccosukee Seminoles. So they have their own groups. I don't want to use the word tribes, because I'm not sure that's the right word, but they are an amalgamation. And they like to be small groups and run their own things the way they want to, rather than one. Although we think it was a large tribe, it was a lot of small groups trying to work together. So they arrived in Florida because of the forced removal of Native Americans in other parts of the South. Yeah, they're they're moving from from the coast west, and then they're pushed further south rather than moving further west. It's and, and it's we, we're always making guesses as to exactly what people are doing. <laughs> and you mentioned some Seminoles even escaped to the Bahamas as well. There were some Seminoles that escaped to the Bahamas. There were certainly African slaves or African-American slaves that, that escaped to the Bahamas. From, we can see in the um, newspapers in the 1830s, there are ads about ads and news stories about the slaves from the St. Augustine and Jacksonville area that have taken a boat and and they think they're headed to the Bahamas. That kind of goes into the next question. This idea of resistance continues even as slavery plays a larger role in Florida, which is now a U.S. territory. So in your opinion, um, and based on your research, how did slaves continue to practice resistance? Well, I think the, the period that we're talking about now after Florida becomes part of the U.S., as some of the laws are changed and practices are changed, there's even more to resist because the life, the life of the slaves have become more restricted. So it's harder to resist, but there's more, there's more to resist. And they, they appear to look for any location where they think there's a possibility of freedom. And that becomes harder and harder to find. We know there's a group that escapes over the area of of down in Southwest Florida, Sarasota, some of them escaped to the Bahamas, some to the Seminoles. The issue is after a while with the Seminoles, as the Seminole War comes along, it's there's not much place for the slaves to escape when the U.S. Army is trying to push the Seminoles out of Florida. So you've got resistance by more than one group going on at the same time. Really interesting. And even when the Seminole War comes along, some, some, ble- some Black people ex-slaves are fighting alongside the Seminoles and right. and doing quite well. Right. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. The, the Seminoles with very, very minimal, very minimal military equipment, probably not much more than rifles, kept the U.S. Army in the field here for like seven years. And at one point, although the Army was not large at the time, at one point, more than half of the U.S. Army was in Florida fighting the Seminoles. The Seminoles never surrendered which is one of their proud comments today, General Worth just finally said, the war's over. <laughs> they had removed wow. enough to, to places farther west, over to Arkansas and Oklahoma. Wow. I think people are hesitant to tell stories that make others uncomfortable. And people certainly don't like to listen to uncomfortable stories. And I think we also need to remember that a lot of these attempts at resistance were not successful. And we don't want to hear that, but that was, that's really the way it was for the people that were trying to resist. They were not successful every time. And that's why it went on for so long. And so I think we do all of them a disservice to simplify and act like everything was always a success and it was easy to resist. And you're referring to both the Seminoles and the Blacks. Both the Seminoles and Blacks. It's resistance is not easy. It was not an easy fight. And and as we all know, we're, all all groups are still fighting a lot of that. <laughs> How did the Seminole War conclude? Well, the Seminole War, the, the, there was the big one, which at the time was called the Florida War. That's what the tombstones say on the soldiers, Florida War. Like I said, General Worth just declared it was over. They were kind of at a stalemate. They had By then, they had driven most of the Seminoles down into the Everglades in the southern part of Florida. And so they just kind of said, it's over. And that, that's how it concluded. There was no treaty. There was no wow. surrender. What year was that? Do you remember? Uh, that was that was 1840, gosh, 42. There was another, they call it another seminal. It was a small, much smaller, and it was fought down 
in the Everglades. So there was some, there was some additional fighting about 10 years later in the Everglades. And how long did the Seminole War last? It's, it must have started. The, the Florida War lasted seven, seven years. Years, yeah. 1835 to 1842. And it's interesting because a lot of the names that will become big, especially during the American Civil War, were down here as recent graduates from West Point. General Sherman, who we all have heard about, I think he uh, wasn't long after he'd gotten out of West Point, it was not his finest hour. <laughs> <laughs> Career-wise, his finest hour. Right, right. Okay. So can you just expand upon this sort of Southern version of the Underground Railroad, talking about resistance and how it wasn't always successful? And when we think about the Underground Railroad, we usually think about escaping slaves going north, but there were routes that went south as well, including outside of the United States. Right. So they've often, in relationship to Fort Mosa, they talk about the Underground Railroad going south before it went north. And we've talked about some other alternatives later, the Bahamas and further down into Florida, long after Fort Mose has literally disappeared. As far as going north on the Underground Railroad, that's a long trip from Florida. <laughs> I'm not saying it's impossible. That, that seems quite doable, probably, if you're in Virginia. Mm-hmm. But if you've got to go from Florida through Georgia, through South Carolina, through Virginia, and then get into what will become the, the northern states, that, that's, that's an extremely long trip. There was no reason to look to Cuba, of course, which was another close by island because the Spanish had lots of slaves in Cuba at that time. That was not a good alternative, but the Bahamas were. Interesting. And so it's safe to say the Southern Underground Railroad, it sort of ended in the Bahamas. Is that correct? I I would say, I mean, there were not huge numbers of people that made it to the Bahamas. But once again, we don't know how many people attempted it and never made it because of whether they were intercepted or because you've got to go out into the ocean. Mm. Uh, how, How many of them perhaps drowned attempting to get to the Bahamas. So there's a lot of questions, but it's always, it's a beacon out there for someone to aim towards, just like the North Star. It's a beacon to look to with the idea that maybe you can be free. Right. Sure. And uh, I didn't mention the Revolutionary War too much because it, it wasn't under, Florida wasn't a U.S. No, that Florida was part of uh, Great Britain during the Revolutionary War. Exactly. And right. Not during uh, the colonies. Correct. And then when Florida became a U.S. colony, where were slaves coming from as people were moving to Florida, creating plantations and things like After it became part of the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Well, after it became part of the U.S., most of them were coming in from other states. By then, not that it didn't happen, by then the importing of slaves was illegal. So we know right. that this took place, but they were not coming in in huge numbers as they had come before. And of course, one of the things that is surprising about the Black population of the United States at that time is that it was growing by birth, by natural increase, not just by new slaves coming in, which was very unusual for an economy that relied on slave labor. Usually they had to constantly, Cuba and the Sugar Islands had to constantly bring in new workers. But after a while, the U.S. Blacks were increasing by having children. Why was that unusual? I think because, probably some was because of the crops in the Sugar Islands, as they're called, sugar grown in Cuba. Sugar is a terribly demanding crops on labor. It just devours, literally devours the laborers that work there. Cotton is difficult, but not nearly as harsh a regime as sugar. And so I think some of what was being grown was the reason they had the blacks and cotton could also rely more, could use more women as laborers, whereas sugar really needed men. So they would have, the sugar places would have a huge male population and a small female population. And you're not going to have natural increase by birth if you have a very small female population, whereas uh, with cotton, it can be more even. And so now Florida's role in the Civil War, we know that Florida seceded and they were resisting the changing winds of what would become the United States at the time. Can you briefly explain Florida's role in the Civil War and then how the Civil War then changed the makeup of Florida? Well, Florida's role in the Civil War, of course, Florida was a very low population state. They did not have a lot of soldiers to send. And also the Federals took over a number of the seaports pretty quickly because they already had installations there. The Confederacy looked to Florida for salt 
But one of the interesting things, and there's been a lot of emphasis on it in the past few years, or renewed emphasis on it, is the role of freed Blacks or people that were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation before the end of the war, joining up and becoming the U.S. colored troops. In other words, the troops that, because they've been freed, and the United States Army establishes first these colored troops in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and they bring them in to, to be soldiers to fight. So these are, these are Black troops that were recently enslaved. They are freed by the Emancipation Proclamation before the end of the war. And then a number of men from St. Augustine also enlist and they become part of those. If you'll think of the troops in the movie Glory, those were colored troops, but they were made up of people that had been free already from Massachusetts. These are people that recently became freed and they became part of the U.S. colored troops. And so they fight for the Union on, on the coast of Georgia, South Carolina and North Florida. Gotcha. And what happens af- after it becomes clear that the, the North is going to win, the Union is going to win, the North had been strangling the economy of the South at the time, right. cotton being a huge driver of the economy, taking a hit. So how does Florida deal with that? Well, Florida wasn't as damaged as a lot of other places were because we didn't have the attacks on towns. We didn't have the towns to be attacked. So we did not suffer the level of damage that that took place in Virginia and in Georgia. But the whole economy is, is, is diminished and demolished for multiple reasons. One thing, it was the South was the theater of the war. And if you're where the wars fought, that's usually where most of the damage is. So there's the economic issue of trying to make a, a comeback. The early hopes as to what would be the role of Black citizens now that they were freed and their participation during Reconstruction in political life, in now becoming part of the city council, being elected to the state legislature, being part of the state officials and cabinet offices. And that, not just in Florida, by the 1880s and 90s becomes shut down. It becomes harder for them to vote. They have to pay a poll tax. This is, I think, really important. I personally think the end of Reconstruction is probably one of the worst things that happen to Black people in America. So can you just talk about the Great Compromise and sort of how Reconstruction came to a very abrupt end? Well, I mean, Reconstruction was, was put in place, obviously, to protect, to protect Black rights. But largely, it was to end when the various state legislatures passed a new constitution that Congress would approve. And that's certainly what happened in Florida. And Reconstruction was basically over by 1868. There were some troops around. But of course, what happens is later, they pass new constitutions when they're no longer under military rule or or, or requirements by Congress. And those new constitutions make it much harder for Blacks to participate in, um, in economic life, in political life. It's almost like a lot of revolutions. There seems so much opportunity. And then the conservative forces just rush back in and try to establish the old status quo antebellum like it was before the war, whatever the war might have been. And so we know that during Reconstruction, Black people were enfranchised politically, economically at levels they'd never been in America. And that sort of scared a lot of people. And they also start to learn to read and write, which makes a huge difference as your ability to economically and also to participate in life if if you can read and write, which was not permitted, for the most part, was not permitted before. I think that's a huge game changer, that being able to read and write. Sure, absolutely. And of course, that had to be a game changer because education played a large role in how a lot of these sort of all Black communities, towns, settlements, forms, and the legislation, the policy that Black people were able to influence to get money to fund education for children in these communities was really important as well. And that also encountered a lot of resistance especially in Florida? Well, the resistance was there always from the end of the war. It's just while the while military reconstruction was in place, that resistance by whites was obviously much more foreclosed. But the resistance was there 
Here's Angela Goines again, recalling a story her mother told her about the 1923 Rosewood Massacre. she told us was that there was this white woman who uh, who was having an affair and she, in order to not get caught she said a black man raped her and so she said that mobs came from she was told mobs came from all around to, to raid Rosewood and set the whole town on fire mm-hmm. and they the night that they killed her grandmother after they killed her grandmother they were about to kill her mother, and the mother had her in her arms. And the other white man told the man that was going to kill her, if you kill that woman with the baby in her arms, I'm going to have to kill you. She said that was the only thing that saved her, grand- her mother. And what was her name? Annabelle Goins. Annabelle Goins. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. that's what saved her mm-hmm. and the baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you, did they tell you which day of the week this occurred on? Mm-hmm. January 1st, January 1st, 1923. My mother would would have been three in February. She turned Mm -hmm. three the next month. So she really was just two something. Uh, Yes, Mm -hmm. this occurred. Mm -hmm. My goodness. All right, did she have any sisters and brothers? She did, but they were older. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't know if they were in Rosewood at the time. I see. Because the subject was so hush hush. That nobody, she didn't talk to, all she talked about was that story, but there was nothing really ever talked about anything else about Rosewood. Nothing, period. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if her siblings were there or if they were gone or grown. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. In the next episode, we'll continue to explore key historical events that contributed to the destruction of Rosewood. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Mm-hmm.